You can do it again and just oh again, the same thing is fine. No, no, no. And look straight at me while I'm doing it. <laughs> okay, this is Mistress Veronica, and you're listening to the Massacast, which is for people 18 years or older. Thank you. Thanks again for downloading another episode. We get a lot of uh, emails, people concerned uh, why the uh, episodes have been so uh, sporadic and uh, less frequent. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, as I've said before, this is going to be uh, the status quo for a little while. I'm currently saving up, pinching every penny uh, for yet another back surgery. That's wonderful. Those of you who've had spinal fusion uh, uh, surgery only to have the doctor say, uh, you know what? I think we need to have uh, a removal of the uh, hardware in the spinal fusion. You know what uh, what a lovely thing that could be. So that's what I'm saving up for. Uh, and after that, um, yeah, should be able to go back. But it's going to be a while. Could be another you know year two. I have no idea. But uh, uh, in the meantime, there are plenty of other really great podcasts out there that will uh, wet your whistle. This episode, however, is uh, someone who's been on the show a number of times, Princess Callie. If you haven't heard her uh, previous episodes, I strongly encourage you to go back and uh, listen to them. Uh, she's got a new book out about uh, erotic humiliation, which is, uh, you can see on Amazon, enough to make you blush, exploring erotic humiliation. Or you can just uh, Google Princess Callie, you'll be able to find it there, and she's on Twitter as well. Uh, all the links are on the website, massacast.com. Uh, but she was back. Um, the, uh, my audio sounds a little muffled. It seems every year I need to buy a new microphone, so that, that's uh, that's on the list as well. Uh, so here it is, Princess Callie, uh, talking about her new book and erotic humiliation. So welcome back to the show. Uh, this is uh, uh, this, the second time you've been on, right? Is this the second time? It is, yeah. It's been a few years, uh, but I had a great time last time, so here we are again. <laughs> last time we talked about Kink Academy a lot, and... Um, for those people who don't know, it's sort of like uh, it's online learning for kink, basically. And um, how's that been going? Kink Academy has been uh, rolling along. We're actually in the middle of a, um, a redesign right now. So by the time this podcast come out, we'll have a snazzy new layout cool. and um, have been working on the search features. We have over 1,400 videos at this point. That's pretty good. It is pretty good with over 130 educators. So it's a it's really a pretty bitchin' resource. So uh, you use WordPress? It is a WordPress site. See, there you go. WordPress. Bingo. <laughs> there we go. Uh, you can always tell the quality of a website if they use WordPress. That's why. So, I'm a fan. Yeah, I am. it's made yeah. it so easy to you know get things done. Uh, I have I I build a lot of websites for people. It's my second gig, and uh, I will always get. Um, you know, some questions about, you know, hey, I'm trying to do X, Y, and Z on Squarespace, or I'm trying to do X, Y, and Z on this. I'm like, well, there's your problem. I already, <laughs> I already found your problem. So um, how many, you said 140? No, 14, well, 130 educators. Educators. 1,400 videos. How, yeah, do you, it's a, how do you keep up? I mean, that is insane. How do you, I mean... What are you recording classes every day or how does that, I mean, you're really cranking out the content there. Yeah, well, um, right now we're on a bit of a hiatus from new content because I really want to give people an opportunity to go through all of these videos. Mm -hmm. uh, because at one point we were posting five new videos a week. Wow. And I would do these things that I called the insanity tour because I would do like six cities in 10 days with like 15 to 20 educator shoots right. during those days. And we would do video shoots. And I do a lot of the video recording myself. Um, and so we would, I'd basically hole up in a dungeon space or, or a swanky hotel room and march the educators through and would just shoot all day long to get all this incredibly diverse content. And how do you decide, is, is it just like, okay, we haven't covered this topic yet, so we're going to cover this, or do a lot of people ask questions and that's how, you know, oh, we didn't cover this subject, so we're going to find someone who does this, or you do just just suck in as much content as you possibly can from as many different sources, or what's what's the deciding factor? 
Yeah, a little bit of all of those. I love getting requests from um, members and from uh, would-be members. We've I've got a guy that's um, been dying for some trampling information, so I'm trying to get some of that more of that up on the site. I also do a lot of when when I book an educator, and I will admit I'm an I'm a educator snob. Um, you know, I'm pretty particular about who I have on the site. But once we decide to work together, then I do allow the educator to pick their own topics because I want them to be the most passionate that they could be. I want them to be excited. I want them to talk about something that, that they feel really comfortable and confident with. And of course, you know, with the, in the kink world, there are such a such a huge range of options of things to talk about. And I, I always make sure that I don't just have one educator talking about a topic if I can help it. My goal is to have multiple perspectives on the same topics because everybody comes at it differently. You know, I'm going to talk about domination in a slightly different way than Great Answer is going to talk about domination, you know, that sort of thing. And so, you know, we really, I you know, the idea of kind of pulling in all of these different topics in a variety of uh, ways of being inspired to get there definitely is part of the process. So you, I'm sure you get a lot of feedback from people who are uh, new to it. And from, I mean, I've seen some of your videos. The thing about that really surprises me is uh, it, it's, there's, or I'm sure there's a temptation to get people who are looking for jack off material, right? Yeah. Which I, listen, don't get me wrong. Some of the videos that, I've seen are really hot, but it, it's very clear that that's not your focus, that your yeah. focus is, is, is to educate and to give someone the most info as possible. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I made a very conscious choice when I launched Kink Academy as a little indie company that um, while, of course, we're talking about these sexy titillating topics, you know, the information is really crucial in order for people to have those sexy experiences at home. I didn't want people to just watch it and jerk off and be like, oh, that's done. Because right. even though yay for yay for porn and yay for jerking off, you know, my goal with Kink Academy is to give people concrete information, pulling back that curtain of how do you make this stuff happen so that you can understand the logistics and then take those things back into your kinky playtime and create these sexy, you know, engaging scenes yourselves, which then you can use to jerk off to. <laughs> Yay right. for efficiency. Yeah. So, <laughs> so yeah, there's definitely some incredibly sexy stuff, but there is a lot of very informational-based videos. That's why we've um, cut them up. You know, they're between five and ten minute videos normally. So you can sit down and get kind of a burst of information, learn some stuff, incorporate it into scenes, and then come back and, and learn more. And uh, do, you, do you find that you have a, is it mostly people who are brand new to the scene, like just curious about it? Do you have couples a lot? I mean, do you have a, a breakdown of your, your average audience or is it just everyone and everywhere? Um, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, uh, People that are new to kink, I think, have a particular interest in a resource like Kink Academy, especially if you don't have the opportunity to go to live in-person classes or events. And people can't attend those things for a variety of reasons, geography, class schedule, family concerns, that sort of thing. Um, and so, you know, definitely if you're new to exploring BDSM and kinky playtime, Kink Academy is going to be a particularly helpful resource. But I actually, I just, at, I was at Dark Odyssey Winterfire um, recently, and a woman came up and said that she's been a member for the last four years, and right. that she's a longtime player, and that she continuously finds new inspiration, new ideas, new techniques, you know, new ways of looking at stuff that she's been doing for a really long time from Kink Academy. And so it's not just a newbie resource. It's a it's an incredible resource for anybody who wants to take their play further. Well, and the other thing too is that there's a lot of people, especially if, let's say if you're really into rope or something like that, and uh, there are people who are really good with rope, and then they meet someone new who is uh, you know maybe not into rope or they're into something else completely different. You know, if you're in New York City or L.A. or San Francisco or some a big metropolitan area, it's it it is pretty easy to find you know, classes in person you can go to and local groups, but a vast majority of people do not live 
you know, in, in a major right. metropolitan area. And so, uh, sure, there are great sources like Reddit communities and FetLife and so on. But um, the uh, and plus, there's a lot of people who just don't want to feel comfortable going out in public to right. events like this. So, right. Uh, so this is great. I'm really glad you're doing it. I'm glad it's continuing to to grow. That's really awesome. Thank you. Yeah, this will be the ninth in September. We'll celebrate um, nine years. Man. We are the original and largest video based resource for BDSM education. And I'm, I am deeply exceptionally proud of that because we are a very, very small independent team of people who have uh, kept this website going through love and blood and sweat and tears and all of those things, you know, and it continues to be just a really original resource, uh, you know, for kinky people. That's awesome. And now you've got a uh, a new book out. For, 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 the, for the people who don't, they haven't heard your first episode, they can go back and listen to that. But kind of give us, you want us to give, give us a rundown of your, your history and kink, how you got started, and how you, I mean, I remember some really amazing things we discussed in the first episode. But again, just for those people who are just hearing you yeah. for the first time, um, how did you get started in it? And, and what, how did your progression go? Sure. I have been um, a, a full immersion pervert for um, about 15 years. And um, I started off as a stripper, but was a very, uh, oh, let's go with bitchy, <laughs> bitchy, bitchy stripper. And um, I considered that to be a bit of my boot camp because once I discovered uh, the foot fetish world was actually my first introduction to the BDSM scene, like the official scene. Right. And I truly felt like angels were singing and rainbow fireworks were going off. And I felt like I had found my place in the world. And um, and so from there, I started going to foot fetish parties. I jumped uh, both feet in. Um, to uh, fetish modeling and to professional domination. And so I was a professional dominatrix for a little over 10 years, as well as a, I've been a lifestyle mistress for much longer than that even. Um, and uh, the last four years I've been, four or five years maybe, I've been retired from professional domination as my focus shifted to Kink Academy um, and now continues to shift into speaking and uh, I'm doing a bit more mainstream presentations. But at the time, I mean, I, I had six different dungeons um, over the course of the 10 years. I was mm -hmm. mostly based in Boston and uh, have been teaching kink for more than 10 years. And really just, you know, the full the, the full immersion perversion Thing, I think really describes what my experience was for a good 15 years in terms of throwing parties and doing sessions and teaching classes and doing video shoots with Kink Academy. And really kink was my entire world for about 15 years. And, and it, it, it has been and continues to be an incredible experience. And so did you notice, uh, you, I, I have a lot of friends who are either currently pro-doms or or they uh, used to be pro-doms, and you know they keep kink in their personal lives. But um, something I've always found interesting is how some, even though they keep kink in their personal lives, there's an aspect of the pro scene that they miss, either that's maybe the variety of types of play they do, or um, you know there is a different dynamic typically when your your, your relationship with someone is is you know, confined to an hour or two hours. And so that the entire duration of that relationship is, uh, is 100% BS or 100% kinky and it's very, uh, boxed in. Right. And so that, you know, there's, there's something appealing about that. You know, you don't have the complications that you might have from a relationship or you might not have, um, uh, you know, you might, you just might be able to isolate the rest of the world in that two hours. And some people find that really refreshing and they really enjoy that aspect of it. Is there anything that you miss about doing it professionally or uh, did you notice oh, yeah. any changes in, in how you had to think about your kink? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, um, I loved being a professional dominatrix. It's a part of my history. It's a part of my heart and it will, it will forever be. I loved all the opportunities to play dress up. I'm a very theatrical person, you know, you know, I, I got paid to wear a tiara for like a decade. <laughs> um, 
you know, and I miss, you know, you mentioned the uh, variety and kind of the opportunity to play with a lot of people, which is, which was a big part of my ability to create this book that I'll talk a little bit more about. And, um, you know, the opportunities to play with so many different kinds of people in so many different kinds of ways. And so I, I do miss that. But that's one of the things I love about continuing to teach kink, even though my personal career, you know, is starting to incorporate more mainstream speaking as well, you know, teaching at kink events does, even though I don't do a lot of necessarily playing, you know, and scenes and that sort of thing, um, teaching at kink events still keeps me really tapped into those feelings of community and adventure and theatricality and sexiness and and all of that. And so I'm able to at least, you know, still tap into that ambient experience. You've also got, you've got a brand new book out. Yeah, I'm really excited. And uh, it's all about uh, erotic humiliation. Yes. And enough the, to make you blush. It's it's uh, it's available right now. You can go to Amazon and you can get it. Um, this is a, this is a subject that I've always been curious about. I'm not curious because I'm I want to do it, but curious because I've never understood it. I I have had experiences where some people have tried to incorporate uh, erotic accumulation, and it's been uh, I don't want to say failure is a strong word. I, it's been, but not success, not as successful as perhaps everyone would like. It's been a turnoff for me every time I've tried. Every time someone's tried yeah. to incorporate it, and um, and uh, I think it's just probably just how I view kink myself or how I relate to it. But um, but that I, I've always felt that I'm clearly must be missing something. There's some aspect of it I don't understand, or some aspect of I'm not be able to to relate to. And because I know tons of people who enjoy it and I've, and I don't want, I don't want to make it sound like, well, I've got friends who are Jewish. So I know, you know, <laughs> I mean, I have friends who enjoy erotic humiliation and who, you know, rave about it and love about it and blog about it. Um, but can you kind of, can you give us sort of the Cliff's Notes version of what uh, erotic humiliation is? Sure. So this book, it's my first book, uh, which is really exciting. It was like 10 years in the making. I've been teaching humiliation for a really long time. And it's the topic that I'm probably the most well known for in the kink scene. And uh, the book is called Enough to Make You Blush, Exploring Erotic Humiliation. As you mentioned, you can find it on Amazon. But and one of the things that I've found from teaching this class years after year after year after year is there is a lot of people who don't understand it. And that includes people who are into it, who don't necessarily um uh, who aren't able to really parse out kind of what they get out of it and that sort of thing. And and I realized actually in writing this book, because it's the it's currently the first and only book on the topic that is completely dedicated to erotic humiliation. Mm-hmm. And I realized as I was taking, because uh, it took me about a year to finish, why that was, because it is a very complicated topic. Um, one of the things that I talk about a lot in the book and in my classes is the a core concept which is that you cannot humiliate someone with something they don't find humiliating, right? And so it sounds like this is something that that you've come up against. A lot of times people make these really um, stereotypical assumptions. Oh, you know, humiliation really is degradation. And it's, I'm going to call you a maggot and I'm going to make you lick my toilet. And, you know, if you don't like that, then you don't like true humiliation. But that's entirely not accurate. That humiliation, like any other kink, has levels that you can explore at. You know, I uh, talk about in the book about how, you know, there, I I think of it as three different levels. Embarrassment, which is pretty low level, kind of teasing, a bit more affectionate and kind of fun spirited. Uh, Humiliation, which tends to have a bit more of an edge to it, maybe is a little bit harsher. And then, of course, degradation, which tends to be pretty hardcore. Um, and so the most important thing is that is that kinksters find their way to the right level because otherwise, like you said, it can be a really big turnoff. You know, if it, it can go really wrong really quickly. And so the process of figuring out, you know, what level do you like? What what type of humiliation play do you like? Because even the term humiliation isn't really all that helpful, right? Because there are all of these kind of sub activities that 
that go under this main activity. There's stuff like nudity. Uh, cisification is a frequent, uh, frequent one. Dehumanization or objectification, you know, bodily functions. Um, financial domination. There are all these different ways of exploring humiliation. And if you don't find the right one, it can feel awkward and unsuccessful. And so my book really focuses on helping people figure out what level, what types of activities. I call it the, the human Rubik's Cube, right? <laughs> is that you're, what you're trying to do is kind of twist and turn this idea of, quote unquote, erotic humiliation to find your entry point and to find your experience that's going to get all your colors all lit up. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, every time I've experienced it, um, and I, I should say there are aspects of it that I, I, I can I can imagine, uh, you know, objectification. I think is really hot, but I don't think of that as humiliation so much. Yeah. Um, um, but uh, a prime example is for the very first time someone tried it on me. This was many years ago. Um, uh, I had gone over to a woman's place and, uh, you know, I did some chores for her around the house and then we, we had sex. And then, uh, afterwards she was like, you're completely worthless, whatever. And I'm like, you just had oh. 10 orgasms. You just had, <laughs> how worthless is that? This is bullshit. I'm, I'm leaving. This is, I'm this is ridiculous. How can you, you know, did you fake the orgasms? Is that what you're yeah. saying? Yeah. And I just, because my mind is, and this is probably also the reason why I can't, I'm, I'm not really I don't know. Good. I, I I'm not really into role playing. Is because the reality of it is so much hotter than faking something or whatever. Yeah, and me. it feels inauthentic. Right, right. And so, yeah. um, but at the same time, afterwards, I'm like, oh man, did I just ruin the scene for her or something? You know. <laughs> um, and th there have been several times when this is, and unfortunately, especially you know, if someone is, uh, and I felt really bad because um, we had a really good scene up until that point. And as soon as I um, didn't buy the humiliation or, or, you know, was not into it, it took the, all the wind out of her sails, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and I felt bad about that because, you know, but I was, it came out of left field. It was totally. Well, yeah. You've got to you know. be true to what your experience is. And I, right. I, I think that that sort of thing happens a lot where uh, dominance or tops, you know, kind of try to throw in what they assume is humiliation play without really, you know, humiliation is so personal. Um, for example, uh, nudity, I, cause there are 12 chapters in the book that are dedicated to all the different types of ways you could play. Like I really stuffed this book full of ideas and uh, this, this uh, last weekend at Winterfire, Dark Odyssey Winterfire, I tried out a new th a new event called Humiliation Truth or Dare. Okay. okay. Tr the Truth or Dare game is kind of inherently based on humiliation, but we took it to the nth degree. And one of the dares was for the submissive, get naked, bend over, spread your ass cheeks, and show all of uh, every everybody in the room your uh, little butthole, right? Now, nudity is something that particularly Americans, you know, Western kind of concepts are, there's a lot of shame involved in it, right? But this woman who picked the card, she was stripped naked in three seconds. <laughs> she, her ass cheeks were open and she was grinning like a Cheshire cat. If you don't know what triggers will work for a specific person, it's very hard to just throw something out and to to assume that it that it will work, right? And so that's what happened with you is where she just kind of threw out this thing that she thought would be humiliating. The then and it didn't. Not only did it not work for you, but you were like, mm, no, and that can definitely take the wind out of a dominance sales, right? And so it's this process that if you don't spend a little bit of you know front loading negotiation about it, it can go wrong. And that's an unfortunate thing. It makes my pervert heart sad. So how do you, I mean, so let's say if we were to go back in time and, uh, and I wanted to prevent, you know, I wanted to prevent making her feel bad for taking the wind out of her sails, but also I wanted to just, you know, I wanted to keep the scene going and make the whole experience good for everyone. How do you, on both ends of the spectrum, um, how do you communicate 
it's really it's really tough to communicate you know oh this is the type of humiliation i enjoy if you know if either you don't know or you're not expecting it to come out is this just going goes back to the old you know communicate beforehand negotiate the scene beforehand or or how do you how do you uh on both ends find you know find out what the other person is interested in or yeah or what do you do how do you go about it? Yeah, that's one of the biggest questions that I, you know, come up against with people is, you know, well, but but how do you get it started? And one of the questions I get all the time is, is it still humiliating if you ask for it? Right. To which my response is an enthusiastic, hell yes. In fact, <laughs> the, the mere fact that you are asking for this thing that humiliates you is humiliating in and of itself. So, yes, communication is really important. Um, I tend for dominance to recommend that they don't try leaping into that whole worthless thing because that that is like the stereotypical humiliation thing and it doesn't work for a lot of people yeah. and so one thing that she maybe could have done instead is to start with some questions um ask you you know what what are the kinds of things that make you feel used in a sexy way right because that's a pretty common thread uh for kingsters and i find that when i teach this class you know, inevitably, I get at least a handful of people that come up to me afterwards and say, you know, I didn't even realize that all this stuff that I was already doing would qualify as humiliation play, right? Because they think that it's got to be this, you know, lick the toilet degradation thing. But if, but once you talk about it and you say, you know, do you like to feel objectified? Do you like to feel used? What kind of words make you squirm in a way that feels kind of, uh, erotically shameful and dirty, right? But in the, of course, the best kind of ways, because we're not trying to create actual shame in people. We're trying to tap in to the, the taboo nature of being aroused by supposedly negative social experiences. Does right. that make sense? Right. Yeah. And so, you know, instead of launching into, oh, you're, you're a worthless worm or whatever, after you've just given her all of these <laughs> orgasms, Another tactic that might have been a potentially more successful is maybe to say, you know, oh, you make such a great sex toy. You are my, you know, my human dildo who who makes me come so much that that being kind of reduced to an object can be humiliating for people, but humiliating in a way that actually is still supportive and encouraging uh, and that sort of thing. I think for her, I think that type of erotic, that type of degradation that she was describing was hot for her, right? I think that was yeah. something that's, and so. Um, but you can't just rope somebody into that just just because you like it. I think that that's one of the things, like I, I don't recommend that people leap into this kind of psychological play without a pretty healthy discussion about it first, you right. know, because it's not, it's it's just the same as it wouldn't be fair for her to pull out a single tail whip and be like, you're now going to take my whip, you know, which which might be a trigger, which might be a bit too hardcore for you. It's not really fair for her to pull out the degradation card and try to slap that down on the table without knowing how that's going to work for you. Now, I, I have a lot of um, uh, friends who are female and submissive. And um, one of the problems that they often uh, come up with when it comes to erotic humiliation. And what's surprising to me is, excuse me, is that uh, my friends who uh, play, who are female and play with other females and also play with other men seem to have the same, um, the same issues with uh, certain types of erotic humiliation because um, I'll give you a prime example of some are really turned on by a, you know, a level of what could be called, you know, maybe erotic slut shaming, I guess. I don't know what else yeah. you call it. Yeah. Right? yeah Whereas others are uh, very, you know, have a very conflicted and, and understandably so conflicted idea behind that. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and because they, uh, you know, politically believe one thing, but at the same time, uh, erotically are maybe turned on by it or maybe turned off by it. No, the thing is, is if you watch, uh, if you watch porn, which of course is not usually a very good indicator of something, <laughs> but it's a, but, or if, if, you know, whenever I read any, even erotica written by women on the subject, 
you know, calling someone, uh, you know, a dirty little slut or something like that is very, very common, right? Yeah. And so I think uh, dominants and tops have an idea that this is something that is commonly used, right? Um, and of course, we, you know, this goes back to no one should assume anything based on who they're playing with. Yeah. But, um, but I have friends who have discussed that it is difficult to, um, the fact that it does turn them on in some cases, or it is expected and it doesn't turn them on, um, and some of them want it sometimes and some of them don't want it other times and it's really hard to communicate. You don't know sometimes until, in, until you're in that scene yep. or in that position. And so, um, uh, you know, I have, I have, uh, one, one friend who's, she's a top and she says she just stays away from it cause she just, you know, uh, she doesn't want to have to have that conversation. She just, you know, she, yeah. she'd rather, you know, she says she, she can have fun without saying it. And so why, why say it? But yeah. is this, some, is this, uh, is this something that you 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 tackle in the book, or something you you've tackled elsewhere? That's you know a common issue, or definitely. Um, in fact, I I just did one of my classes is called uh, Women Taking Power: Feminism in DS, and we had a really fascinating discussion about this very thing because one of the biggest components of humiliation play is social social taboos and social concepts. You know, there's a reason why. Um, quote unquote rape fantasies are so popular with women. Um, I think that the term rape is is usually inaccurate. I think that ravishment tends to be more in line, right? Because rape is typically about violence and power, whereas ravishment is more about an overwhelming desire. And I've been I've had some very um, emotional conversations with women who consider themselves to be feminist, who are strong and assertive women who don't understand why the thought of gangbangs or bukkake scenes turn them on so much. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it's because of these overarching social concepts that we simply can't escape and are particularly relevant when it comes to psychological play, you know, stuff like, uh, misogyny and classism and slut shaming, all of these things are social concepts that we are steeped in that then create these subconscious attractions to um, exploring them in ways that are safe uh, because we spend most of our waking hours um, asserting that we don't want them, that our subconscious then sometimes for some people subverts that and says, no, yes, we do. <laughs> we do want those things. Right. Uh, but we want them in this very particular sort of way. And the, the idea that, you know, on a Tuesday, you can want to be called a dirty, filthy whore. And on Thursday, that same phrase might turn you off is another thing that's really important. I think about kink in general, you know, we are humans before we are kinksters. We are human beings with experiences and hormones and emotions and uh, stuff that impacts how we feel about ourselves in the world in on any given day. Right. And so um, I actually, I uh, just uh, did a blog post about uh, landmines and triggers because one of the things that I talk a lot about is how particularly with humiliation play, it's not if a trigger will get hit, it's when. Right. And because we don't always know how we're going to feel about something until we're in the middle of that experience. And even if we've had a positive response in the past, that, that may not always uh, happen, right? And so I consider aftercare to be the plan for if things go right, right? Do we want a blanket? Do we want a snuggle? Do you want some chocolate? And that is separate from a trigger plan, which is what to do if things go wrong. Right. Do you want a hug? Do you want a chocolate? Do you want time by yourself? Because those are two very different experiences that we need to plan for if we are intending on having a healthy kink experience where everybody comes out on the other side, happy to have done what they did, even if it wasn't as successful as as was hoped. Right. I know uh, someone who does some really heavy uh, erotic uh, humiliation. I mean, just stuff that I think, you know, some human you know, UN human rights councils could be alerted about. I mean, it's some really yeah. just yep. heavy stuff. And um, uh, depending on the partner, but for the most part, what she has said is she will, uh, in her mind, 
weigh the level of degree of humiliation, let's say up on the scale of, you know, one to a hundred, if it's a 70, then she will uh, go out of her way to try to do the same level of aftercare. Yeah. Uh, so that, you know, the, the person, you know, feels cared for at, as, as that same amount as, as, as not. So, I mean, it's such a tricky thing. I think any, uh, you know, kudos to you for, you know, even trying to tackle this book, even though I know <laughs> it's something you're really into. Um, it is, uh, it is, I mean, how many pages is the book? I mean, because I, I think that there should be, if I were to even attempt to think about writing something like this, I would have uh, one page on the subject and then 500 pages after that page just on the caveats of what I just wrote, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, and that's, and I want to mention, though, one thing, too, is that it's it's really important to remember that that submissives aren't the only ones who need aftercare. Yeah. I, I have found particularly when it comes to psychological play, but but all kink, top aftercare is also really important. It's a topic that wasn't talked about for a really long time and I think is becoming more of a thing now. But when you're the one who's doing these socially completely unacceptable things to someone, even if it is consensual, even if that person writes you a thank you note afterwards, often tops also need to be reminded that they are good people, that this is kinky play that was desired, you know, and so the aftercare should go both ways in terms of making sure that everybody um, feels good about it. But, you know, the book's over 200 pages, and I tried uh, my hardest to strike a balance between, you know, beating the dead horse of safety. Um <laughs> Right, because I <laughs> we're beating the dead horse of safety once again. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You know, because um, the the only other information I've ever found um, on humiliation that's out there is one chapter in Flag's book, um, something the forked tongue. It, the title is escaping it, and he takes a very different approach that I do, where he's like, once you get consent, you know, I can do whatever the fuck I please, and I definitely took a bit more of like a. Here are all the ways you should negotiate. Here are ways to check in before, during, and after. Here are ways to talk about what your desires are and what your experiences are. Because I would much prefer for people to be, to learn all of the kind of safest and healthiest versions of things before they can then adjust to their own styles and types of play, right? Um, because the, the bottom line is that all of the stuff in the kink world, if you look superficially at it, looks kind of screwed up. You know what I mean? Right, like right. we're tying people up, we're beating them till they, they're bruised, you know, we're fucking them until they, you know, scream and cry, you know, without understanding the context, which is so important, you know, uh, context is one of the five things that I feel, uh, determines whether or not something is a healthy, kinky experience. Context, uh, of course, consent, trust, um, communication, and the fifth one, you'll have to read the book to find out. Um, <laughs> but, you know, understanding what the goal is also is another really important thing that I talk about in, in the books and in the classes, because what your goal feeling or what I call the uh, your kernel kink, uh, your kink kernel, uh, is, is way more important than a particular activity. Because once you understand how someone is trying to feel during or after the scene, and again, this is true for submissives uh, and for dominance, is that if somebody wants to feel uh, used, Right. Like, let's say like a like a sex object. But like you said, I mean, you know, erotic slut shaming, I think, is a great phrase uh, and is one of the more popular things. Right. Because there's this great cycle of, ooh, I'm going to tease you about how turned on you are, which turns you on more, which gives me more to tease you about. There's okay. this really great cycle that you can um, get sucked into Uh you know, but but wanting to make sure that you guys are both on target, right? Do, does the submissive want to feel used? Do they want to feel small? Do they want to feel safely rejected? Does the dominant want to feel in control? Do they want to feel amused? Like I do a lot of splashing, uh, throwing, you know, wet and messy food at people because I love um, the fact that my submissives will sacrifice their dignity <laughs> to make me laugh. Right. Right. That's a very different scene style 
than somebody who is trying to break someone down in maybe like a military style before maybe later building them up, right? So, sure. so again, we're back to this Rubik's Cube of what are the feelings we're trying to get out of this? What are the activities that we enjoy? What is the level that we're looking to experience? All of these things. And it sometimes is a trial and error sort of thing. You know, you got to come into this kind of play with a lot of compassion for yourself and for your partner to understand that you're both trying to figure this out. And when you're dealing with the labyrinth of the human brain and emotions, you know, there's there's going to be some times that things don't go as planned. One thing that always fascinates me is that the stereotypical, uh, I don't say media depiction of BDSM, especially uh, female dominance, is the, you know, get on your knees, worm type of yeah. thing, right? Yeah, man haters, uh, man haters. Right. And, um, and, and, and as a result, I know that it's very tempting, and I think understandably so, for people on both sides, either for um, male submissives who are, you know, or female submissives, someone who's just getting into it because that's the only, and also in porn too, right? I mean, it's depicted that way in porn quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Um, that the, the, they're exposed to that and that's what they eroticize because that's the only thing they've been exposed to. And also uh, dominance, male and female, because that's what they've been exposed to. And when they're first starting out, there's a temptation for them because that's what they've been exposed to, to, to depict that as well. Well, this is what you do when you're a dominant, right? Or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which, you know, if, if both people, you know, if both partners at that time are, you know, that's what they've signed up to, for because that's what they've been exposed to, great. But... Um, you know, why do you first? Do you have any theories of why that is the default position that media seems to, you know, depict kink in? Oh yeah. Or I, no, I got. I have an opinion. And sure, go ahead. Yeah, I'd love to hear. <laughs> My opinion is uh, because it's it's sensationalistic. I made femdom porn for more than a decade and my videos had a very different feel than when I was simply alone in a room with my submissive because the kind of energy and intensity that I can cultivate and create on a, in a one-on-one -on -one personal experience doesn't always translate on camera. And so particularly when it comes to porn, you need to up the levels really drastically. You know, I, I personally don't consider porn to be very educational, right? Like it's, it's great for inspiration. It's great for jerk off material. It's very sexy, but I don't typically think that people should model their experiences off of porn because no, but 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 like you say, how many people do they watch these videos where they're you know the level is just this crazy intensity and it's super hot and it makes them want to you know orgasm and masturbate and you know be dirty filthy in in all the delightful ways. But then they're not always um, so clear when it happens. In fact, I I can give you an example of it. I had a session. Uh, very early on in my career that this guy um, with a small penis humiliation fetish was writing me these emails and he wrote me a number of times these really lengthy things. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I've been uh, masturbating about the idea of women making fun of my small cock since I was a teenager. I've never done it in person. Every time I go into a bar, I imagine all the women pointing and laughing at me. But within five, maybe 10 minutes of our live session, he it, it broke him down and he started crying in a not cathartic way. Right. And he was devastated with this sudden realistic experience and this this reality that he has a small cock and it it totally backfired right. on him and on you know the session as a whole. And um and it's because he had seen all these videos, you know, with 12 women laughing and pointing and it was so sexy. But when somebody was actually looking him in the face, it was too much and it was a very different thing. And so I think that, you know, that, that kinksters need to understand that when it comes to porn, when it comes to um, Hollywood style movies, 
you know, they're ratcheting up the intensity level because they're looking for a sensationalistic, dynamic, impactful thing over video. Right. And that that's just simply not necessary to have the kind of experience that you're actually looking for in a personal, real life erotic humiliation session. I think, uh, I can't remember who said it, but someone said that um, the, the problem with porn and someone trying to relate their sexuality to porn uh, as opposed to how it happened in real life is, is the equivalent of someone watching. Oh, yeah, I you know, know where you're going. <laughs> so, so, someone watching Die Hard and thinking, oh, man, that's so cool. And at the same time, being in a situation where a bunch of, you know, you know, terrorists take over your building, your right. reaction would not be the same, you know, right. or, or whatever. That it's just your, your, the reaction to how it's like when you're watching it and you are completely disassociated from it is completely different um, from what you expect when, you know, when it's going to happen in real life. Um, right. And I, you you know, don't, like, you don't watch you know, those, um, those speeding car movies to learn how to drive, right? Like that's a, that's a saying that go, I'm, I'm obviously, <laughs> I'm not hip enough to know the name, but you know, the one that there's like seven of them. Um, oh, and Fast and Furious. Race. Yeah. Fast and Furious, right? right. Like you don't watch Fast and Furious to learn how to drive because that would be incredibly stupid and dangerous. Right. Porn is the same way. You don't look at people who you don't know what the negotiation was. You don't know, if, you know, are there 10 people standing around waiting to assist if the scene goes wrong? You don't see any of that because that's the magic of Hollywood. That's the magic of porn. Uh, and so you don't want to base what you're trying to do on those things. I, I, it is such a difficult, it's, it's such a difficult, I mean, thankfully, you know, we have the age of the internet where you can, you know, in two seconds, you can, you can buy a book on on you know erotic, uh, just about every subject and have it in your Kindle in two seconds, right? You, I mean, you name it, right. and you can get something that's that's educational. So you don't have to rely on porn. The problem is, is that porn is so much easier to get. Of course, yeah. Um, and and it's so it, you know it's so difficult to to weed that out. And if you don't go looking for it, there's no way. I mean, you have to have a lot invested mentally in order yeah. to. You know, in order to in order to jump into something, I mean, it's um, it's very difficult. It's very difficult, and and usually someone, who, especially when it comes to something sexual, they're going to think with their privates before they right. think with their head first, anyway, right? Right. Um, unless you have a situation where someone is really interested in a partner, and they're not maybe terribly kinky, but they're willing to try it, and then they might lead with their head first, I guess, you know. Um, yeah. What, so, what are some of the other uh, issues you see people come upon when they're when they're dealing with with it? Especially, like I have a friend who is she's African American and she really enjoys uh, race play. Mm -hmm. uh, and her big complaint is that she it's really hard for her to find someone who who will engage in that type of play. Yeah. And uh, you know, I could you know I, I'm I remember telling her that look, this is Exhibit five thousand one hundred twenty three where I could never be a dominant. You know, and <laughs> And, and I, you know, I feel for her, you know, but at the same time, I'm, you know, you know, I, if I saw someone doing something that at that, you know, a, you know, a race play in a, in a, you know, public play scene or something, it'd be very difficult for me not to, you know, intercede. Judge just, that person. Right. Yeah. Right. How do you weigh that? Especially, you know, cause I know some people who've done it just because the other person, whether, you know, it's something completely on PC, uh, and whether that's race play or something that's you know, out of context would be very sexist. How do, you know, if you're a top, if you're a dominant, and you really want to please your partner in doing this, and you are, you know, you really want to do this for them, how do you shut that part of your brain off that says this is completely wrong, or this is something that I just can't, I just can't do, or 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 I really want to do? How do you, how do you trick your brain or do something? <laughs> um, you know, how do you, how do you get over that? Well, I think two things. Um, again, this comes back to a couple of ideas we've already touched on, right? Top, top aftercare and maybe pre-care is really important. You know, that I would say that as a top hearing from my partner, what they're looking to get out of this, um, particularly challenging 
experience um, might help me, uh, you know, might help me understand kind of why I should give it a try, you know, because it will help my partner release something that it's cathartic or, you know, and it, there doesn't have to be some huge meta reason. Like your partner can just say, look, it makes me come like <laughs> I want to do it because it gets my nether regions hot. Right. Um, but but I find that, that figuring out the why can really help me as a dominant shift the mindset into, yes, this is something that I want to explore. I want to at least give it a go, right? Um, and I, and that I can feel okay about saying these horrible things to someone I care about because we have negotiated it, because we have talked about it, because I understand what they want to get out of it. Um, and secondarily, I think that it's also really important for dominance to remember that they're allowed to have limitations too, you know. Um, I think top limits are also something that doesn't get talked about a lot, you know. And it it should be just as legitimate for a dominant to say, I just can't do that. Mm -hmm. And to have that be accepted as it as it is for a submissive, right? Like we as a community have determined that it's not cool to coercively get a submissive to do scenes that they're not comfortable with like that is has been determined as a bad thing which is which is right in my right. book right but i think that it's not as talked about for dominance to feel the same way and so as a dominant if your submissive is asking you to do something that makes you a bit squicked out i'd say that there could be three steps you know one Talk to your partner, figure out kind of what they're looking to get out of it so that maybe you can find an entry point into it because I think that it's important for dominance to feel good about what they're doing, just the same as submissives, right? And then secondarily, I'd say that if you if that conversation gets you to a point where you feel like you can try it, give it a go. And again, come at this experience with compassion for each other. I'm curious about, you know, we've talked about trigger warnings uh, and, you know, just triggers in general. Um, um, sorry, trigger warnings, probably not that I've been reading a lot of blogs lately. Um, yeah. <laughs> but when, when sort of like when you, when you're playing with someone physically, you can tell by body language, uh, when you're maybe getting close to the edge or maybe when you're going too far or something like that, is there something you look for when you're doing, uh, mental play, when you're doing erotic humiliation, is there something you're looking for to tell where that line is? Is there are, are there any? Is it you know? Maybe yeah. it might be difficult if the person's hooded or something like that. But are, are there some telltale signs of when it's when you're maybe going over the line or coming close? Yeah, I think that again, this is why it's so important to know the person that you're playing with. I have found that um, when you're doing physical type play, like bondage and impact play, there are common threads of signs to look for, right? Like if you're doing impact play, then and maybe they're trying to wriggle away from you for, for a lot of people that, are, that aren't being bratty, that that's a signal that maybe it's too much that's happening, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And with psychological play, it is much tougher because sometimes, you know, I, I mean, how many times do you look at your partner or look at somebody you care about and realize that you have no idea what's going on in their mind. And that could just be when you're having lunch at the local sandwich shop. Right. right. And so I think that, you know, communicating ahead of time about what some um, ways to communicate during the session uh, is really important, you know, safe words and, um, uh, you know, words that are intended to either slow down or shift gears, that sort of a thing. Uh, but, but I have found that one of the, one of the signals that is most common um, and again, you got to figure out who you're playing with, but that is most common is when somebody kind of goes blank and still, right? That when somebody's having a good time, there's, there's usually a flush on their face, you know, their eyes get, get glazed, but also kind of focused, um, right? And, and if they move into just glaze, just getting a look like they're just trying to get through it. Right. That that is a that is a sign that maybe you need to shift gears. But this is why one of the key concepts I talk about is ramping up. Right. Is that it is much harder to back up 
than it is to move forward, right? right? And so if I'm doing a scene with somebody and maybe it's early on in our play or you know we're still kind of trying to figure out this whole humiliation thing, I don't want to leap into um, you know, flushies in the toilet, you know, putting their face in the toilet. I don't want to <laughs> leap into, you know, public gangbangs where people are coming all over my partner. I want to start with things where I can cultivate this feeling and then see what the response is. Right. And so using, uh, like, let's say with, um, orgies and gangbangs, right? Like before I get 12 people in a room, I'm going to get my submissive in a room and I'm going to use verbal play to really describe the scene to them, right? And I'm going to keep a really close eye on their body language, on their face. I'm going to ask them questions, you know, how, you know, tell me how you think you would feel as you feel the fifth guys come dripping down your balls, right? You know, I want to use words to paint a picture because it's much easier to back that up than to be like, oh, excuse me, fifth guy, I think we're having a breakdown now. Can you take <laughs> you and your come over to the corner of the room? That's going to be difficult for everybody. Right. So ramping up and moving forward at a steady pace is going to be simply more successful. And I, that's what everybody is looking for is successful scenes. You know, if you're just looking to be the most intense person out there, feel free to jump in the deep end and good luck to you. <laughs> but for the rest of us, I think that, you know, moving steadily forward and ramping up the intensity is going to create scenes that we enjoy, which we can then build on in the future. Uh, one thing I think I, I, that I really like about uh, your book is that, that in the description on Amazon, the very first sentence is erotic hum humiliation goes far beyond the lick my boots stereotype. I yeah. think that is key. And I'm so glad that that was the first sentence in the description. Um, well, this has been this has been really great. I've really enjoyed. It. Is is there? Um, do you have any plans for book two? Or I do. In oh, fact, wow. yes. Um, I am a prolific pervert, uh, and so the sequel. I mean, it'll probably take me a, you know a bit to get it going, but the sequel will be called A Deeper Shade of Red, and I will be more of an anthology of many people's voices, articles, um, essays, erotica is kind of how I envision it. But for right now, a good place to start is Enough to Make You Blush, Exploring Erotic Humiliation. It, I really have written this book to be helpful to uh, both new kinksters and longtime kinksters to give you lots of stuff to either think about and build into your experience or to maybe um, uh, refine and fine tune stuff that you're already doing and lots of inspiration. Like I said, I mean, 12 chapters of um, all different kinds of fun ideas that are just stuff packed with <laughs> stories and um, multiple level sort of suggestions of activities. And so uh, you can find enough to make you blush on Amazon. Of course, you can just search Princess Callie, K-A-L-I, or enough to make you blush, or you can go to enough to make you blush.com where you can sign up for my newsletter and get um, a, cus uh, a humiliation negotiation sheet that'll oh. help you specifically negotiate humiliation play. And I've got a bunch of other fun goodies, including my scene starters deck, which has over 200 filthy phrases for you to call your loved one today. Um, <laughs> And so, you know, just come on over to the site, enoughtomakeyoublush.com, say hello, let me know what your, um, what you thought of the book, you know, please leave an Amazon review if you, uh, if you buy it and, and read it from Amazon. And, um, uh, you and already also, have a lot of good uh, reviews, a ton of reviews already. So that's yeah, lots all of them five star, star reviews. 100% five star so far. So yeah, yeah. Well, I worked really, really hard on the book and it's, it is deeply gratifying to have people respond in such a positive way. You know, it is a topic that I'm really passionate about and I, I think, you know, can be so much fun uh, if people are able to just find their own entry point. And so I have tried to help help kinksters find an entry point that can help them expand and explore in their own kink journey because we are all on a journey and the journey is is the fun part. The destination, you know, uh, we'll get we'll we'll get there whether or not that's orgasm or you know whatever. but the journey of exploration, I think is 
the best bit. And so I'm grateful to be able to help people with that. So thanks so much for having me on, Axe. I love chatting with you. This has been a really fantastic conversation. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. And we'll have all of your contact information and everything else on the website uh, for this episode as well. And thank you very much as always. Awesome. Thanks, Axe. Have a great day. Thank you, Princess Callie. You can find everything about her on uh, Massacast.com, where we've got links to where you can find her book and uh, her on Twitter and so much more. Thanks again uh, for listening. We'll talk to you later. Bye-bye.